are continuing in our series, God of All Grace, which is 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter. And today we're going to continue in 1 Peter chapter 2. If you have your Bible, you can turn there to verse 13. Verse 13. But before we get to the text, I want to tell you a little story. Uh, in the early 2nd century, about 111 AD, so the last apostle dies off in about 80, the... And then there's about 20 years of just the apostles and their students and their disciples and pastors who followed, that they have trained proliferating out into the world. And they're starting to experience serious Roman persecution. The government of Rome does not like this new fledgling Christian faith. And there was a governor, his name is Pliny. And he called himself Pliny the Younger. That's like saying, in our time, that's like saying Pliny Jr., right? So he was the son of Pliny, Pliny the Younger, and he was a governor of a place called Bithynia. And he was having a lot of problems with Christians in his providence. And so he wrote a letter to the emperor Trajan in Rome to ask him how he should handle what he called the contagion of Christianity, and the way he describes it in his letter is to say this mental contagion, right? This mental illness called Christianity has infected every person in every town, in every borough, in every home, in every farm. And what has happened is, is that the temples that were usually full of worshipers worshiping their Roman gods were empty, <laughs> they were empty. And so he writes and describes how uh, he, just, he just had to deal with these people. And so uh, Christianity, as it went into the world, had some problems. It had some problems. The first one was a legal problem. The first one was a legal problem. If you've ever wondered what the book of Acts is about, it's about a lot of things. But one thing it's definitely about is the fact that the gospel has a legal right to exist in the Roman world. And that's why there are so many trials in that gospel leading right up to the end of Paul's final trial before Caesar. That book is framed around the skeleton of these trials. And in every single trial, Christianity wins the case. And so what Luke wanted to do is compile this book, bring it to Paul's trial. In my view, he brought it to Paul's trial to say to Caesar, see, if you just read this amicus brief, if you will read this, you will see that we have a legal right to exist in the Roman world. But the Romans didn't see it that way. They didn't see it that way. Believing in a crucified person was sedition to the state. Because that crucified person was presumed to be guilty of crimes against Roman order. And if you said, hey, I'd like to share with you the good news of a crucified Palestinian Jew who rose from the dead in the first century, you immediately had a legal problem. Because in Rome's legal system, you were not allowed to be a follower of any philosophy taught by a person crucified by their law. But you also had a religious problem. The religious problem is exclusive devotion to Christ was inherently, automatically, enmity with the state. If you, if you said you believed in Jesus Christ exclusively as your Savior and your Lord, those are, those are Caesar's titles. 
Those are his titles. He's the Savior. He's the Lord. And it's his gospel that has been spread throughout Rome. And if you say, no, I believe in Jesus of Nazareth, you got yourself a religious problem. Devotion to Christ was enmity with the state. It was sedition to the Roman emperor worship. And then you had a political problem. Your political problem was worshiping Jesus, a dead Palestinian Jew, and risen from the dead, was treason to the state. Paul was careful to always identify Jesus by these three terms. These, they're imperial terms. You need to understand them from Roman imperialism. Jesus the Savior, that's, that's Caesar's title, Savior. Jesus the Christ, the anointed king, that word means the anointed king. Nope, that's Caesar's title too. And Jesus the Lord, kurios. The word kurios is used exclusively in that context for Caesar. So when Paul writes in his letters to the Romans about the Lord Jesus Christ, your savior, he, that is anti-imperialism. Christianity has a problem. In fact, one early church father, Pastor Polycarp, was executed for this very reason. He was well-respected by the governors. He was well-respected by the Roman authorities. And what they did is they dragged him before the Roman authorities, and they said, uh, uh, Mr. Polycarp, Pastor Polycarp, please renounce Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's Caesar's title. And here's what they said. If you will say that Caesar is Savior and Lord, we'll let you go. And, and history tells us that Polycarp cried out, Yeshua is Savior and Lord. And they killed him for it them to the beasts. Christianity has a problem in this world. And then you have a social problem. There are gangs of people, bands of people who are really angry at you for being a Christian in this society. There is an entire guild, an entire Smith guild of people who do nothing but make idols for people to worship. But if people are no longer worshiping these gods represented by these trinkets and these idols and these omens, you're out of business. And if you are not making money for your family, you're going to be pretty angry at the Christians because it's their fault. Now, I want to read you a snippet from Pliny the Younger, the governor Pliny's letter to Trajan to ask him how to handle these horrible people called Christians who are disrupting their society at every level. Here's what he said. He says, soon, uh, soon accusations spread, as they always do, as usually happens, because of the proceedings going on, and several incidents occurred. An anonymous, um, an anonymous document was published containing the names of many persons, those who denied that they were or had been Christians when they invoked the gods in words dictated by me offered prayer with incense and wine to your image. Whose image is he talking about? Caesar's, Trajan's, uh, which I had ordered to be brought for this purpose together with the statues of the gods and moreover cursed Christ. This is what they asked Polycarp to do. Curse Christ, announce Caesar as Lord. None of which uh, those who are really Christians, it, say, it is said, can be forced to do. A real Christian can't do this. They asserted, however, that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn. That was their worship service, one hymn. To sing a hymn to Christ as to God and to bind themselves by oath, not to some crime, not to commit fraud, 
theft, adultery, not to falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. Accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. But I discovered nothing else but depraved and excessive delusional beliefs. This is, this is what your governor in Rome thinks of you. This is what he does to you. Similarly, while this is going on legally in the Roman world, the Greeks hated Christians as well because people were leaving Greek philosophy for the simplicity of this gospel message. And Greek philosophers accused Christians of all kinds of crazy stuff like cannibalism because of the communion meal, child abuse, wild sexual immorality, poverty, low social standing, and atheism. They regularly referred to Christians as atheists because they didn't believe in the pantheon of gods. They only believed in the one true God of Israel and his son Jesus. The values of the Christian faith were certainly not in line with many values in Rome. Their contempt for Christian values, such as humility, you and I think that humility is a good value, don't we? Another virtue would be mercy, to show someone mercy. Rome didn't prize mercy. Rome thought that mercy was weakness. Forgiveness, you don't forgive a person. You take vengeance on that person. Patient endurance and suffering, no. You go and cry out to the gods and light your incense and make your sacrifice so you don't have to suffer. All these values that are found embedded in the Christian faith were countercultural values to the Roman and Greek world. And at the same time, Rome itself was experiencing a roiling turmoil within its own self because of its craziness. They had political corruption at all levels. Political corruption at all levels was rampant. Political partisanship among the senatorial classes. Deep factional divisions. Deep factions and deep divisions among all political parties. Nothing changes, does it? There were simmering frustrations over the inability of the citizenry to vote. Imagine living in a country where only 10% of the people that live in that country are citizens. The rest of you are considered slaves of the state or you're considered the, the uh, property of the state. And that 10% wanted to vote. They couldn't. Slaves were being manumitted uh, variously at various periods when the economy would go really, really bad. Slave owners would turn all of their slaves out onto the street. There was no Walmart. There was no capitalist system. They couldn't go get a job. As slaves, they couldn't uh, open up a trade or a shop. And so here you have masses of people starving in the street. And then internal revolutions were a drain on their society and their military and their resources. Disease was widespread. There was a disease right after the Christian faith was started in Egypt and Carthage. It was a plague. That plague lasted 20 years. And it affected the entire Roman world, the entire known world at the time. And that plague lasted 20 years, and it was just as contagious, scientists tell us, virologists tell us, as uh, COVID-19 is, just as contagious, aerosoled by air, but it didn't make you sick in your lungs, it made you sick in your guts. Scientists tell us that the closest thing we have in our modern day to it is Ebola. Imagine something as deadly as Ebola, as contagious as COVID-19, 
for 20 years. They have no vaccines. They have no treatments. They have no therapies. They don't know anything about germs and hand washing or social distancing. They know nothing about this. And, the, and it just takes about 20 years for the virus to burn itself out and kill millions upon millions of people. This is their world. And who do they blame? They blame the Christians. They blame the Christians for all of this. They scapegoat people of faith because they are busy praying to the God of fortune. Fortune was a God. And they prayed to the God of fortune and they begged the God of fortune to give them fortune and favor. And when he didn't, they scapegoated the Christians for this. And when you live in a superstitious world like this, and the God of fortune and your gods are not favoring you, you look for someone to scapegoat. And all the while, while Christianity was being persecuted to the death, it was flourishing and growing like what Pliny said, a contagion in every hillside, in every borough, in every town, every home. Everywhere. It's everywhere. Now, if you're an apostle and you live in this world, this is the world you live in. This is the world that the Christians have been scattered and exiled across. What kind of pastoral advice do you give your flock? Here's what he says. 1 Peter 2, 12 through 17. Live honorably among the ethnic nations so that when they defame you as villains, they will observe your good works and so glorify God on the day he visits now, essentially what that means is when God comes back to judge the world, these people are going to stand at the witness stand to give testimony, regardless of the fact that they have slandered you and defamed you. They are going to stand on the witness stand and God is going to say what was really true. And they're going to say that person really lived their faith, actually. So on the day when God visits in judgment, they will say, they will observe your good works and glorify God, whether they want to or not. Submit to every human authority, he says, because of the Lord, whether to the emperors as the highest authority in the land or to local governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence witless foolishness. The, the Greek says witless fools by doing good. Submit as free people. Not using your freedom as a disguise for evil behavior, but as God's servants, honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, show deference, honor to the emperor. This is what you tell people in the ancient Roman world. Be good citizens. Here's the first one. Live honorably among the nations. Be an honorable people. Conduct yourselves with honor rather than dishonor. Conduct yourselves as law-abiding people, not law-breaking people. Conduct yourself not according to your lustful, shameful, sinful impulses, but according to the holy standard of God's word. The word honorable is the word kalas. It's the word kalas. And it means beautiful, of honor, noble, distinguished by the good. We are charged with living in accordance with the value system of heaven. So here's what you're going to find out. You're going to find out that the value and virtue system of the kingdom of God sometimes, often, does align with human law. Do not murder. Well, I'm sure your local authorities would prefer that you not murder your neighbor. Right? Because their dog did his business on your lawn. Although I have had those thoughts. Okay, do not murder. A lot of time, the laws line up 
there are points of contact between the law of God and the law of man. The value system of heaven and the value system of this world. That's especially true in America. But there are times also when the virtue system of the kingdom of God is not in alignment with this world. And you and I are still going to have to conduct ourselves honorably, honorably in the world. So let me give you some Christian uh, virtues that you should live out. Number one is passionate love for God. Passionate love for God. There is no other organization on the planet earth that is so distinguished by its passionate love for God Almighty. By its passionate, zealous love for the one true God of eternity. There is no other organization where you can find that. None. Uh, We have a, a friend of this church uh, he's a young man who used to be a Muslim. He grew up in the UAE. And uh, he and I had an extended conversation. Uh, and I asked him, his name is Muhammad, and now he's a born-again, spirit-filled believer, loves Jesus. And I asked him one day, I said, what, what is Islam really like? I said, is there like any talk in Islam of love for God? He goes, oh, never. You, you don't talk about, you definitely don't talk about God's love for you. You're a subservient thing in his kingdom. And his description, I thought, man, the Christian faith among all of the religions, even the monotheistic ones in the world, is distinguished by this value right here. We we have never lived in a time when it has been so difficult to passionately love God. What Daniel said, that scripture that he read is exactly right. God, it's I want you more than anything else, I want you, I, and I don't want anything in this world. I want you. And it has never been more difficult to live according to this value. Never. Because never in the history of the world, never has there ever been a nation that had so much prosperity and so much guaranteed, supplied personal liberty and freedom that you and I had the freedom to pursue leisure. <laughs> that, world is, that word is an American invention. We invented that word. The pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness has not been the pursuit of any nation prior to the invention of America. It hasn't. Because everybody else was too busy just trying to live and survive and exist. And you and I live in a nation where people actually have so much time on their hands because of freedom and because of prosperity and because of the abundance that God has given us that we actually have time to be distracted from the things that matter most. We do. Think about that. What other culture in history in the world has cared so much about these things. And we too are, sometimes we are so busy. And now we have the technology, right? All right, so we have the freedom, but we also have the technology commensurate with that pursuit. So we have all, these, all this gadgetry that makes it possible for us to just be endlessly, endlessly distracted from being passionate lovers of God. Loving God supremely above all. And that's what distinguishes this church. If you want to know, if you're a visitor here, or you're not a member here, and you want to say, hey, what distinguishes Christ Community Church from the LDS Church? Or from the Muslim Mosque? 
or from other churches that are just busy with other things. That's what distinguishes us. Love for God supremely above all. Amen. Amen. Come on, wake up. Virtue number two. Compassion for the grieving. Every person Jesus ever touched or healed, every miracle Jesus ever did, could he, he could have done it. Listen, he could have done it from heaven. Do, do you believe that? The leper? Crying out to be free of his leprosy? Don't you think God could have just went, like, <laughs> boom, you're healed. But he doesn't do that. How does God do it? God does it embodied. God does it embodied in a human agent. God the Son comes and is incarnate in a human agent. And what does he do? He looks on the hungry, harassed, helpless people on the hillside like harassed sheep. That's how he sees them. And his heart is broken for them. He doesn't look at them and and say, look at all the reasons why you got into this predicament. He doesn't say that. He just, he loves them. He mourns. He stands before Lazarus' grave and he weeps his eyes out over the ravages of sin. This God is compassionate for the hurting. Uh, I am from Richmond, Virginia. I grew up there. I have driven um, up and down Monument Avenue a thousand times. I also have... uh, Mostly when I lived there, I mostly had black friends. So the crew, my homies that I ran with, I was like the one white guy amongst all the black guys. And uh, we would constantly drive around Richmond. We never had a conversation about this 30-foot-tall statue of Robert E. Lee. Never. Never had a conversation about Stonewall Jackson. Not once. Never came up. More than a few times as a white dude pulling up to the roundabout or the intersection where one of these statues were, no matter what we were talking about, no matter what energy was in the car, we would pull up to the statue and sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes the life force would just get drained out of that car. There was an unspoken, searing heartache in my friends that in a major street in Richmond, Virginia, where they lived, there were monuments to men who enslaved their ancestors. It was heartbreaking. And we never talked about it. But I could feel their pain. Whatever you think about that issue, I'm, I'm in the camp of Indiana Jones. It belongs in a museum. Don't trash it. Put it in a museum. Let's not forget our history. We need to know where we came from. But let's not celebrate these people either. And so that's where I stand with it. So the other day when uh, the governor had announced, this was before lawless people actually broke the law and pulled these statues down, which they should not have done. But uh, they announced that they were going to take these statues down. Well, you don't know this if you're not from there, but there are a lot of those statues all around town. Some are just in neighborhoods. And my friend, my best friend, who I've known for years, he's a black guy, he walked out and did a little Facebook post in front of just a, just a 15-foot-high statue, just a 15-foot one of Robert E. Lee that's in his neighborhood. <clears throat> and he went out there and filmed a little thing, and it was, he's a Christian, he's a believer, he's spirit-filled, he loves the Lord, he's all about forgiveness. But he just filmed a really nice thing to say, hey, this has broken my heart my entire life. 
And I'm glad these are coming down. They have broken my heart. And that's it. And I just wept as I watched that. Let me ask you a question. What is your first instinct with people who mourn? What's your first instinct? Because I'll tell you what it ought to be to mourn with them. The, the scripture tells us to mourn with those who mourn. You know what empathy is? Empathy is the skill of listening to another human being who doesn't share your perspective. doesn't mean you agree with them. It just means you listen. It just means you actually listen to what they have to say and to listen to the pain in their heart, whether, whether it's real or the reason for it is real or not. And this is the impulse of compassion. The impulse of compassion is to love people and to mourn with them and to cry over the injustices in the world. It is. That's the Christian way. That's how Jesus did it. That's how the Father did it. And that's how you and I should do it. Number three, law-abiding citizens. We usually jump straight to this one, don't we? I mean, our, refl our reflex our reflex is to say, hey, don't break the law. <laughs> you know, we get angry at people that break the law. They, they trash a city like this crazy stuff going on in Seattle and Capitol Hill. Or they trash uh, Lake Street in Minneapolis, just burn it, people's businesses to the ground. Doesn't that make you angry? I assure you that makes God angry as well. Because they are breaking the laws that God has instituted among men. And God has instituted these people and these authorities. And God doesn't like it. And here's what he says. Number 13. Verse 13. He says, yield to every human authority. Because of the Lord. Why should you do it? Because of God. Because of God. Whether to the emperors as the mighty highest authority. Or our local governors. Or those sent out by him to punish those who do evil. And praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence witless fools by doing good. God wants you to put them. He wants you to silence them. But he wants you to do it with reason. And with scripture. And in a lawful way. You and I are supposed to be model citizens in our culture. As far as it is up to us, we are to build our half of the bridge. We are to make the overture to say, I am of all the people groups, of all the groups and organizations represented in this world, this group is going to obey the law because these people were instituted by God himself. So when do we break the law? When should we? Based on this principle, we obey the law so long as those arbiters of the law do not forbid what God has commanded, nor command what God has forbidden. Read that again. We obey the law so long as those arbiters of the law do not forbid what God has commanded, nor command what God has forbidden. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to make a prediction, like an Old Testament prophet. I'm just going to make this prediction. At some point, we are going to have an administration in the White House that is either going to, by fiat, by uh, executive order, or the Supreme Court is going to rule it, or it's going to be legislated by the congressional branch. At some point, they are going to put pressure on us to perform gay weddings. And I'm telling you, as long as I'm your pastor, I'm not going to do that. I'm not. I don't know what you think about that issue, but I can tell you right now, I'm not doing that. I am not going to do what the scripture forbids. In addition to that, I don't think that you and I as a church can forbid what God has commanded. If the state forbids, 
forbids us to do what God has commanded us to do, that is the point at which, like the apostles in the book of Acts, we have to say to the Sanhedrin, you judge what is right. Is it right to obey the laws of man when they are in conflict with the commands of God? No, it is not. I got to tell you, I usually, the pastors here will tell you, these guys will tell you, I usually land on the side, I err on the side of obedience to the law. I want to accommodate legal authorities so far as it is up to me, okay? I really do want to be a good citizen. I take this very seriously, what Peter says here. And Paul says in Romans 13. But I'm a little worried about Illinois. And I'm a little worried about California. Anybody else worried about California? <laughs> yeah, I'm worried. I'm, I'm getting concerned that they are now on a slippery slope. If you don't know what's going on there, they, have, they are mandating... They have targeted two things. Those states have targeted two things. Preaching and singing. Okay. So we're not just here to give a speech. And they don't understand that. We understand. Okay. They, they don't get it. But we're not just here to give a speech, a nice speech. And we're not just here to uh, sing a few little happy songs and make us feel better. Nope. We, are, we have gathered, assembled. We are a heavenly assembly. We are seated right there in that chair with Christ in heavenly realms, <laughs> okay? Mysteriously, spiritually, we are the gathering, the assembly of Almighty God, and we are here to preach the good news, the gospel, and we are here to lift Christ high. And when the government says, oh, you can't be the church, well, we can't follow that. We can't accept that. Now, that doesn't mean we have to be stupid, I mean, man, I'm telling you, I have a friend, a really good friend. She knows who she is, and she's watching right now. I love you. Uh, but uh, she lives in a state that is having a terrible outbreak with coronavirus right now. Just horrible. And I watch, on occasion, her church's live stream services. This is a state where there's one of the worst outbreaks in the country, and nobody in that church is social distanced at all. I mean, there's no space between anybody. They're packed in there like a bunch of sardines. And it's a very lively, charismatic worship service for about 45 minutes of singing. Uh, very different than the early church where they sing a hymn and then they did the sermon. A and there's an hour-long sermon. I got to tell you, I don't think that's wise. We are under no biblical mandate to have a two-hour worship service. That's, that we're, we do not have a biblical mandate to do that. So we can be wise and we can accommodate our government so much as we can. But we don't disobey the word of God will be what we've been mandated to do. Anybody believe, with that? believe that? Okay. Next value is evidence that the gospel has transformed us. For it is God's will that you silence the witlessness of fools. Foolish people. By doing good. What is the best argument and evidence for God? How do you silence a person when they're falsely accusing you of whatever, what not? How do you silence them? I'm going to give you four Christian apologetic evidences that you can put in your back pocket. Here's the first one. God himself. Best evidence for God is God. Best evidence for God is God's manifest presence to convict you of sin and convince you of his gospel. That's the best evidence. I could not give you a better argument than that. And here's how God has chosen to mediate his presence and manifest his presence in the world. He has chosen to do it 
right in here in this room. When you and I gather together, God mediates his presence through our worship and our upholding his word. Number two, God's proclaimed gospel. Do you know the gospel? Can you explain it to a person? It should take you 15 minutes to explain the gospel to a person. It should take you 15 minutes. There's no such thing as a two-minute elevator pitch. There's no such thing with the gospel. I'm going to give it to you. You and I need to, the power of the proclaimed gospel. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. The gospel is the power. So I'm going to give you what it is. Here it is. You can write it down. The gospel is the royal announcement that the world's rightful king has come to save us from our sin. If you don't remember any other sentence, remember that one. The gospel is the royal announcement to the world that its rightful ruler and king has come, and he has come to save us from sin. Let's stop right there. Why is that so important to say that? Here's why. Because God is king. God is the high king of heaven. And sin is not just doing bad things. Sin is rebellion to his authority. It is rebellion to his reign. It is when the sovereign king of heaven decrees, you may eat of these trees, but you cannot have that one. And you say, no, I'm going to have that too. That is rebellion. Now, all of your homework assignment, you write this down, is Isaiah 1. Isaiah 1. I don't see people writing. Write it down. Isaiah 1. You need to study Isaiah 1 and you underline in that passage every time you see the word rebellion and sin together. In Isaiah chapter 1, he starts that book out by saying, God is the high king of heaven. I am God's prophet among the kingdoms of this world. And you, Judah, you, Zion, have rebelled and sinned against your king. You want to know what sin is? Sin is rebellion in the realm. Sin is, is an affront to God's authority. It is a slap to his honor and his face. <laughs> That's not a good place to be in. Okay, so the gospel is the royal announcement to the world that its rightful king has come. Now, if you went out into Rome and you said to a person in Rome, hey, I've got a gospel I want to share with you, they would immediately think, you're going to tell me the good news that Caesar has come. Because that's what the word evangelical meant in the first century. The word evangelical, that Greek word, in the first century meant Caesar's good news that he's been born into the world as your savior. It's the message of the king, king of the kingdom. Okay? First Peter, or 2 Peter 1.11, here's what he says. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided to you. Notice the catch words. You and I want to enter the eternal kingdom. Of who? The kurios, the Lord of the realm. And the Savior, Jesus, the anointed king. If you explain, try to explain the gospel without this sovereign king referent, you, don't, you haven't framed the gospel yet. But he's not just the high king, he's the savior. He's the king who comes to save us from our sin. 
How does he do that? That king came, was born in the flesh, and led a sinless Torah faithful life. Why is that important? Because Adam failed to. The first Adam failed to. Israel, God's son, failed. (laughs) They failed. Where they failed, the third son, Jesus, God the son, has succeeded. He led a perfectly obedient Torah faithful life demonstrating himself to be God's son. And he died in crucifixion to atone for sin. The word atonement has two elements to it. The first one is what we call elimination. And the second one is what we call conciliation. So elimination is just expiation. That means God, in atoning for your sin, your rebellion has to take away the thing that is between you and him. And then that is now a propitiation or a conciliation. It's an appeasement to God that you avert his wrath. That's what atonement is. It's critical for us to be able to explain these things. He conquered sin and death in his bodily resurrection from the dead, vindicating his claim to lordship over the world. Vindicating his claim to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? And then ascending to the right hand of God and this royal proclamation to the world, that, that is the power of God for salvation. And when you explain that to your neighbor, you say, hey, here's the truth. The truth is you're a sinner. Here's what that means. God is the sovereign king of the universe. You have rebelled against his commands and his laws. And living in a state of rebellion in his realm, you're our insurrectionist. You're a revolutionary. But today, you can become a son by faith in Jesus' death, resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of power. Amen. You should be able to explain that. It'll take you 10, 15 minutes. Number three, God's people suffering in the name of Christ. I'm going to tell you this. Outside of God's own presence, convincing the sinner of the reality of himself... Outside of God's presence convicting the sinner of his rebellion and sin in his kingdom, outside of that and outside of the proclaimed message and the power of God to save a sinner, the greatest apologetic, the greatest defense of the faith that you are ever going to have is your life lived in suffering. Your faith burnished by fire. (laughs) This is God's will. God's will is for you and I to live a cruciform life. What is a cruciform life? It is a life that is not only saved by the cross, but formed in the cross. It is a life that is not only saved by the cross, but it is formed in and after the sufferings of the cross. Number four, God's propositional truth. Now, these are intellectual evidences and arguments where you tell another person, hey, here's the answer to that objection, and you should know those as well. But that's not where we start. Okay, so this is how we demonstrate to other people the truth of God's gospel. This is how we demonstrate it. Next virtue, cruciform service to our neighbors. He says, submit as free people, not using your freedom as a disguise for evil behavior, but as God's servants... Honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, show deference to the emperor. Who's the emperor? Caesar. Who was the emperor when he wrote this? Nero, the worst. Okay, so you and I are to not only live cruciform lives, lives formed after the sacrificial 
ethic and the sacrificial love and the persecution of the cross, we're not only to live those kind of lives, but you and I are to live in cruciform service for others. This is a service that is formed after the cross. What did Jesus do on the cross? He sacrificed himself for humanity. And this is the kind of service that we give our community as well, each other first and our community as well. Corinthians chapter two, verse two, he says this, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You are saved by the cross. You are shaped by the cross. It's because when Paul writes of Christ crucified, he is not just talking about the cross that saves you, but the cross that shapes you. And the message of Christ's cross and resurrection is the power of God for salvation, but it is also the pattern of God for spiritual formation. You and I are formed into the image of the Son, and that is a cross-shaped life. Cruciformity also takes the shape of suffering in his name. So this is how we are to honor everyone. How do we honor everyone? If someone disagrees with you politically, how do you honor them? <laughs> yeah, don't blow them up on Facebook. Don't, don't tweet them to death, right? Yeah, no. So if someone disagrees with you, you honor them. You show respect to them. You gently respond to them. You care for them. You serve them the way Jesus served you, dying for them, dying on a cross. So to recap, the virtues, the values of the Christian life, the way that you and I show honor, the way that we live an honorable life is passionate love for God. We distinguish ourselves as passionate lovers of God. We distinguish ourselves as the one place in the world where people can experience genuine sanctified empathy and compassion for the grieving. And we are law-abiding citizens. There is no group that should be the most law-abiding group in the culture and we show people evidence that the gospel has transformed our lives. And we live crucified service, live in crucified service to our brotherhood and our neighbors. And he says, honor everybody, love the brotherhood, love each other, fear God, live with an absolute holy panic of the God of glory. And then show the emperor, show the authorities in your land Show them the honor that is due them. Will you pray with me? God, this is a tough message for us because what it requires, we recognize, is that we be subjects in your kingdom. We are sons, but we are also subservient to your authority and your rule. And God, this is tough for us because we are not used to living in a kingdom. We're used to living in a republic where we vote people into office. But God, we just want to recognize right now that Jesus Christ is the risen, exalted King. Jesus Christ has invited us and summoned us into his kingdom. And Jesus Christ, the Lord, cannot be voted out of office and his term is not going to end. And so we surrender our lives right now to the authority of God. And we want to pledge ourselves to being the best Christian citizens that we can be. If you're here this morning and you've, and as I was going through that gospel, you realize, oh, wait a minute, I've never surrendered. I've never submitted. I've never pledged my faith and received the grace of salvation. It's very simple. 
you begin by confessing what is true. The Holy Spirit is moving on your heart right now to convict you that you're a sinner and a rebel in his realm. A rebel in his administration. And now he's inviting you to confess that you are a sinner. That you're out of alignment with the king. Will you confess it right now? Confess your sin. God, I'm a sinner. I'm far from you. And I'm going to spend eternity without you. And then you confess what God has done in Jesus Christ, our Lord, who led a sinless life and died of substitutionary death and rose victorious over sin and this curse of sin, which is death. And you confess that you believe that. God, we believe that. We believe that Jesus is our Savior and who rose again from the dead to defeat death and hell. We believe it. And right now, we pledge ourselves to you. We pledge ourselves to being believers, sons, followers, subjects in your holy kingdom, the kingdom of God. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you for transporting us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.